With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success, and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Marcos, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and welcome to this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on leaders and companies facing the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, the USCBC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization representing over 200 American companies doing business with China. And our topic today is the U.S. Congress and Economic Relations with China. So thanks so much for tuning in. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because not only is it an important topical area, area in U.S.-China relations, but also a very timely one as the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act of 2021 and different components of it, like the Endless Frontier Act, have been in the news quite a bit recently. So our first panelist uh, to discuss these issues is Anna Ashton. Anna is Vice President of Government Affairs at USCBC, where she's responsible for developing and implementing the USCBC's advocacy on behalf of member companies. And we are also very fortunate to have John Gold with us. So John is Vice President of Supply Chain and Customs Policy at the National Retail Federation, and in this role, he represents the retail industry before Congress and the administration on issues like supply chains, international trade, product safety, and also customs-related issues. Anna and John, welcome to China Corner Office. So let's just start and dive right in uh, with this U.S. Innovation and Competition Act of 2021. 
I think maybe it's known as USICA. Maybe you can l- let us know the right uh, a- acronym pronunciation, Anna. Uh, so this is an omnibus bill, which includes a number of different provisions uh, that have been in other bills that have been uh, floated over the past number of months, including, as I mentioned, the Endless Frontier Act. So Anna, maybe we can start with you. Uh, you can maybe give us just a general summary of the act, what's in it, uh, and the current status. Sure. So la- well, I guess it was uh, May 17th, Monday, May 17th. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer combined many provisions that we've been watching into a more than 1,400-page omnibus China-focused bill that's now called the the United States Innovation and Composition Act of 2021. Um, Lawmakers opened debate with a cloture vote of 86 to 11, indicating potentially overwhelming bipartisan support. Um, And as a reminder, Schumer then introduced a lengthy set of amendments Uh, to the package, and then hundreds of proposed amendments to that amendment were introduced subsequently by both Republicans and Democrats. So uh, to summarize what's in it is a little tricky because we we still don't know ultimately what's going to end up staying in it, but I can tell you what we know was in it when it was introduced. Um, So I can tell you at least partially what's in it. Uh, First, there's the Endless Frontier Act, which is the foundational bill that was put forward by Senator Schumer and Senator Todd Young, Republican of Indiana. This is the one that creates uh, federal funding and support for various types of research and development in high-tech industries and would also create hubs across the United States for that research and development. It also would fund Um, some of the semiconductor industry measures that were passed in last year's National Defense Authorization Act, uh, measures that we've been referring to as CHIPS. Then there is the Senate Foreign Relations Bipartisan Bill that was was put into this called the Strategic Competition Act. It's a proposal that's largely non-trade related, but does include some language that would affect trade relations. For example, um, there are provisions in there that were would require a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. There's the meeting the China Challenge Act of 2021, which was worked out by Democrats and Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee and contains new sanctions and export controls provisions. And then um, there is, as I said, additional funding for CHIPS and several Senate Homeland Security Committee bills that were marked up earlier this month. That was That was all in the base text. And now we're kind of paying attention to the provisions that may make it in in addition to all of that. There's one that we've been paying very close attention to, and we still don't know exactly whether it's as part of this package or perhaps separately independent bill um, that would create an outbound investment review mechanism that would create oversight by the federal government of U.S. business ventures abroad in countries like China. And um, we're particularly concerned about that one because of the expansiveness of the language. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So lots of st- st- stuff in it. And looking forward to digging into some of those, you know, d- different parts as we as we go along. Uh, before sort of turning to John for a second, I want to remind everyone uh, that, you know, we'd love to have some questions from all of you. So please feel free to use the question and answer function, which is the bottom of your screen. Uh, that is easier to have all the questions in one place as opposed to putting them in chat also. So please use the Q&A function. Uh, great. And so, so John, uh, so you represent 
the retail um, industry. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what your members think of this act and maybe, you know, a little bit of color based on the retail um, uh, the retail sector's opinions on on this uh, omnibus bill. Sure, I mean, I think as you know, Anna mentioned this. You know, this is a top priority for for key leadership in Congress. Majority Leader Schumer certainly has pinged this as his one of his top priorities to to get through Congress. He always said he wanted to start with the Endless Frontier Act as the base, and then add to it all the other pieces from other committees that had bipartisan support. So that's why you're seeing all these other pieces that are getting added. To this, that now you have what is the U.S. ICA or the U.S. Uh, um, Innovation and Competition Competition Act. Um, there's a lot in there that was still going through. There were some key provisions that were added during the committee markup initially that we have some very strong concerns about, including something that requires country of origin labeling for products sold online, which we think is, while important, is extremely difficult to do as the the requirements now shift the liability to the retailer to list the the country of origin, which is very different than how you see a country of origin on a label in a box, you know, or in a garment when you go and buy it in store. It's the responsibility of the manufacturer, the vendor, to have that there. So we've got some concerns with that that we've been working through with with staff. Um, and some other provisions in there as well. I think on the whole, you know, we are supportive of this going forwards. Obviously looking to invest more uh, in US uh, Competition, ensuring that we are still leaders on key technology issues um, in other areas. Obviously, for the retail sector, you know, one might not think of retail as a you know tech-intensive industry, but we are incredibly reliant on technology, especially as you've seen through the pandemic and the advances that the industry has made through e-commerce and other things they've been doing in store. So technology really is critical for the retail industry and our ongoing innovation. So being able to do more and invest more in the U.S. certainly is is a key component of that. However, you know, as Anna said, we're watching this entire package because there are a lot of other different pieces that are that could impact us. Um, you know, there was a, a fight before Congress left town on last Friday about adding the major trade package to the bill, which we think is incredibly important, including things like renewal of the miscellaneous trade bill and the generalized system of preferences. Uh, reinstating some of the 301 tariff exclusions that had expired and a new 301 exclusion process, um, as well as some other efforts in there. But it's we're still waiting to see how this is all going to play out after the, the congressional recess. I think that's the yeah, and, big and on that, you know, Anna, I would love to get your perspective next. on, you know, sort of timing, you know, what the House has signaled, um, you know, it may do. You know, I mean, it's interesting that given the the general uncertainty and how many different moving parts there are. I know, you know, last week Senator Schumer was saying he wanted to pass it by the end end of the week. Um, and you know, given that you you know two experts are still you know a little bit figuring out what, what's in it, it doesn't seem like it should pass soon. But you know, you know more about how things pass Congress than I do, so maybe I'll, I'll ask you, Anna. Sure, I'm happy to to start out there. You know, it's been an interesting process right from the get go. Maybe I can give you a, a little bit of framing of how much China legislation is happening on the Hill and and where this came from, because I think that uh, how quickly it's moved and will move is sort of a function of that. Um, in this Congress, we're actually tracking 175 China-related proposals already, um, and this Congress started in, in late January, and that is an enormous number of bills focused on one topic 
Uh, in the last Congress, there were a total of 550 China-related proposals. And um, again, an enormous number of bills focused on one topic. But this, it looks like in this Congress, we will outpace that number. There's really a, uh, a zeitgeist about China by Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. It's one of the few things that they agree on. Um, they don't necessarily completely agree on exactly how to address various perceived challenges posed by China, which is why we haven't seen this vote happen yet, I would say. But, um, of, you know, in a very divisive political climate, this is one broad issue area where both Democrats and Republicans agree that we need to do things and we need to do them soon. And both parties are anxious to be seen as... Um, the right choice for being tough on China and meeting the China challenge. So uh, this is an extremely ambitious bill. When Schumer first proposed it in February, he only had the Endless Frontiers Act component as the bill, which isn't really in and of itself a, a China-focused piece of legislation, or wasn't. It's more focused on revitalizing the U.S. economy and making sure that we're competitive in certain sectors. Um, but he promised that he was going to take input, bipartisan input, from the different committees and he gave the opportunity for committees to contribute their own proposals to this bill. So right from the get-go, we knew that there was the potential for it to be a very large, sweeping, omnibus piece of legislation. But we also thought, um, you know, the the ambition was a significant one and that it was anyone's guess whether or not it would ultimately come to fruition as this this giant piece of legislation. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of ups and downs for um, Schumer and Young, who are the main people driven the process from that. But um, I think that seeing that drive to something about Chinese China challenge is enough. It has uh, brought together members of both parties in the Senate on numerous different committees to craft proposals, in many cases, hundreds of pages long, rapidly, and bring them all into one bill within the just a three months. And um, although they weren't to get it to floor vote on Friday, uh, despite Schumer, you know, hoping and, and claiming up to the last minute that they would, I think that we can expect that it will get floor vote in the very near future when the term recess. And the question is about to be posed, what happens to it uh, if it passes and then moves to the House. And I think some of that depends on what the floor vote is. If it's a very strong uh, majority yes vote, then there's more chance that we'll quickly house and with, uh, without a lot of debate about the content. If it's, you know, just 60 yes vote, then I think that we are likely to see uh, a significant amount of debate in the Congress because there are members in the House that have differences with various aspects of the bill on both sides of the aisle. Great. Yeah, we'll get to, get to that in a second. John, do you have anything to add on sort of the timing or, or House uh, process? Yeah, I mean, I think the timing certainly is, is unclear. I think beginning of last week, it was unclear they were actually going to be able to get a vote because they were so far apart on some of the negotiations. And then things started coming together very, very quickly. Um, one of the major hangups that some of the Republicans had was whether or not the trade package was going to get a vote. That got resolved, and they had a very strong vote on that on that trade package. It was, I think it was 94 to 1 was the ending vote on that. And then other issues started popping up that prevented the, the leadership from getting a final manager's package, which is what was preventing the, the final vote. And it was getting so close to the recess that timing really became a, a major problem. 
I think they've got to get through the the manager's package issues, and there's still a lot of them that are outstanding. And then the ultimate question is going to be, even if you do get that package, what is that vote going to be on the Senate floor if they are able to put it up? You know, as Anna noted, they need to have a 60-vote majority for that to pass. And I think there's concerns on both sides of the aisle with what's in that package, whether it's the cost of the package, whether it's not doing enough against China and other other pieces. So it's going to be interesting to see, one, if the majority leader can keep the Democrats all in line and get you know all the Democrats on board, and then if there are going to be 10 Republicans that are willing to, to cross over. Even Senator Young, who's one of the co-sponsors of the underlying bill, has concerns that the funding that he wanted for the, the Science Foundation was stripped and most of that was shifted elsewhere. So they've got to overcome some of those those challenges to to get the full vote in the Senate. And then I think as I know the open question is, you know, what happens in, in the House and, you know, does Speaker Pelosi have her own thoughts on what a China package should should look like? Um, it's I hate to say anybody's guess right now, but it's it's very challenging. And with with the close margins that are in both the House and the Senate, that obviously makes passing legislation extremely difficult these days. So it's, you know, I hate to say it's unclear, but it's unclear at this, at this point in time. But it's it's a major issue that that is a priority for a lot of people. It just can they yeah, get there at the end sense. of the day to get a piece yeah, of legislation? We'd love to actually sort of set a little bit of context around this and some of the, you know, maybe sort of fault lines between some of the different, you know, sets of actors. I mean, as Anna mentioned, this is sort of unprecedented, this 175 pieces of of uh, you know legislation that have been that have been proposed uh, just since since January and so this huge you know bipartisan focus on China being tough on China you know and it's you know and a lot of the provisions I mean you know John you mentioned that your you know members the retailers saw a lot of positives in it probably a lot of the USCBC members are seeing a lot of sort of positive aspects to it as well. Uh, I guess one question is, I mean, is there any downsides to this? Are there any people that are sort of resistant to it for, and and if so, for what, whatever reason? And then I'd love to hear a little bit related to that, you know, where maybe some of the differences between the Democrats and Republicans are on uh, on the sort of different aspects. There are things that the business community is concerned about. I think there is uh, some pretty strong support, especially from companies in tech sectors that would benefit from uh, the funding in the Endless Frontier Act and the the CHIPS funding. There is support there for uh, the federal government to do more to boost our industry here at home. And um, that that is an interesting development. I mean, it makes perfect sense for companies that see an opportunity to work with the federal government um, to to be supportive of it. At the same time, it raises some questions about um, are we entering a new chapter of free market capitalism, uh, modif- more modified than, I mean, of course, it's never purely free market capitalism, but, you know, where there's more government involvement in our economy to ensure our competitiveness globally than there has been in the past. Um, there are other parts of the bill or of the legislation um, some parts we're not sure are going to make it in, or in some parts we were a little bit more sure that that raised concerns from members. I think in an ideal world, a lot of members would have preferred to have seen the Endless Frontier Act move by itself instead of having all of these other China components attached to it, some of which are trade related, some of which are national security related. 
uh, some of which have to do with uh, diplomacy, religion, human rights, many other um, aspects of the relationship that are not uh, strictly commercial. I think one of the biggest concerns is just the fact that it's moving in this process that's rapid, that, um, that involves attachments, very dense attachments uh, being added suddenly without a lot of warning and without a lot of time for companies or other stakeholders out there uh, who care about this process to read what those attachments contain and, and understand their potential impacts and have conversations with staff and offices on the Hill about those impacts. Um, one of the concerns certainly is the outbound investment review piece that may or may not make it in because of the fact that, you know, we have a sanctions regime, we have an export controls regime, uh, we have these other tools already in place and already being used, wielded aggressively um, to affect the kinds of business that U.S. companies can do abroad and with various Chinese and other, other business partners. Uh, so there are questions about whether or not it's truly needed, but also uh, questions around, you know, the capacity of different federal agencies to follow the the new rules that are proposed here and actually carry out, implement, and enforce. And I can't remember your second question. Uh, Sorry. I think you hit most most uh, every. It, 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 it might have been sort of differences okay. between the Democrats and Republicans. Uh, sort of what some of the issues, like for instance, the Olympics. I think might be more important to the Republican Olympics uh, boycott versus Democrats. Um, so, yeah. So where some of the fault lines are between the two parties? I'll I'll give a couple, and then I know John will have thoughts as well. So one is yes, the Olympics. I wouldn't say that it's exactly a difference. Uh, I think. You know, there are members on both sides of the aisle who feel very strongly about human rights issues globally and have expressed their strong sentiments uh, to do with many other human rights issues in the past that had nothing to do with China. Um, and there are members on both sides of the aisle who, in particular, feel very strongly that there needs to be something done by the U.S. government and other governments to address the situation that we see in, in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, and one of those proposals that's been floated by mostly Republicans to date is an Olympics boycott because Beijing is hosting the Winter Olympics next year. Um, it hasn't, it's no longer exclusively being, being championed by Republicans. Nancy Pelosi said recently that she also strongly supported an Olympics boycott. Um, but it has been, it, it was Republicans who kicked off that call. And we've certainly seen more Republicans jump on that bandwagon than, than Democrats to date. But I, I think that might change. Another um, interesting schism has to do with where the money's going to come from to fund these different portions of, of the legislation and what that's going to mean for other interests and a major concern that Republicans have expressed in our meetings with them. And I think, you know, to the press as well for many months now is that they don't want to see funding diverted from the defense, from, from our defense needs and the National Defense Authorization Act in order to fund, you know, in, you know, innovation projects and uh, supply chain changes and other things that this bill might might put into law. And uh, you know, there was an expectation by Republicans that the Biden administration might uh, 
roll out a budget proposal that was either static or decreased defense funding for next year. And that has, in fact, happened now. That was a development last week. The, the Biden administration proposed essentially no change to the defense budget. But the Trump administration in its last year had indicated that it was their view that there needed to be a 3% increase annually, at least, in order to effectively keep up with inflation. Um, so this, I think, is going to be something that we'll see enter the debate more conspicuously in the next week. Uh, concern around the fact that there is not adequate defense spending being proposed by the Biden administration from Republicans' view, and perhaps there should be reductions in the funding that is encompassed in this legislation in order to in order to balance that out. Yeah, I mean, I think Anna did a good job laying it out. I think the the biggest concerns are, you know, from from the China hawks. Does it go far enough to to punish China and and take care of some of the issues? They've got you know some of the folks that are again are concerned on budget. Um, you know, where's the money coming from? But where's it going as well? You know, Bernie Sanders last week expressed concern about where some of the money was going to be going to and who it's going to. So that poses a a concern. Uh, and I think just the the timing of getting this rolled out, the the budget requests and needs that that are needed. Um, there's, there, I mean, there are schisms all, all throughout this. Again, you know, talking about, you know, Senator Young, who's one of the chief proponents of the, the Endless Frontier, who's concerned about changes that were made during the committee markup, that the bulk of the funding that he wanted was shifted out of the Science Foundation to the Department of Energy. So that's a huge concern. And how do you rectify that? So I think, again, with all the different pieces of the puzzle and making them all fit, folks are seeing, you know, fault lines appearing for, for a lot of different issues. I think Republicans also are are upset about just the process, how it's working, the number of amendments that are or, or are not being considered. Um, this is the first time we've been back in kind of regular order in, in quite a while. It's interesting to see, see how regular order actually works. So I think that's the other concern as well is, you know, whose amendments being considered, whose isn't, and, and those kinds of issues. So I hate to keep coming back to this, but it's still we're still so uncertain on how this all plays out on the Senate side. And they've got a whole other ball game to play on the House side if it gets through and, and what's going to happen there. And I don't even think there have been any conversations on the House side of what to do if the Senate bill makes its way over. You know, there was a new bill, I think Anna mentioned it last week, that Gregory Meeks introduced the Eagle Act, which is supposed to be the counter to, to this bill. So, and that's more focused on, you know, U.S. Dipl- diplomatic policy issues as opposed to the funding and, and, and competition piece of it. But I think, you know, the China issues have been brewing for, for several years now. So it's all seems to be kind of coming to a head now. And I think there are a lot of pieces that are leading up to that. Obviously, it's been ongoing. The, the economic competition with China for, for decades certainly has been, been an ongoing issue that, you know, part of this issue is to try and get ahead of that and make sure the U.S. remains at the forefront of key technologies, which is one of the growth areas that we see. But then also, I hate to say it, but, you know, the whole COVID situation has folks ginned up as well and trying to figure out all, all of that. So you've got all these pieces that are coming together. And again, you know, folks trying to out, out, yeah, you know, with out one tough other each other addition, on how tough they're going to be um, on China. Just building on that, that uh, had temporarily escaped my mind, which is that uh, very recently, we've seen more noise from uh, progressive, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, um, basically expressing concern that we are rushing into a Cold War 
type situation and that there might be repercussions that we're not fully considering before before we before we move ahead. Uh, so I think that that's a really interesting development and one for us all to keep an eye on and also an unusual one in terms of the potential alliances it may create for certain business interests as well, you know, to be combined with uh, progressive Democratic Party interests that haven't usually been particularly well aligned. Um, but that is the only real voice on the Hill that we've heard to date that is not uh, echoing this call for a much tougher, much more aggressive orientation towards China. And even that voice, even as even as we are hearing people like Bernie Sanders and Elon Omar speak out against uh, rushing too quickly into a Cold War type scenario, we're also hearing them uh, pretty clearly express concerns about the Chinese government and the way that that people are treated under under that regime. So it's not a complete difference of views. It's, uh, I guess, a, a difference in how they think we ought to approach it. Got it. Uh, I'm curious as well. I mean, we talked about sort of schisms between different sort of political sets with, with it within the government. Uh, we have a question here that asks specifically about, you know, different sectors and, you know, thinking about what you were mentioning, Anna, about sort of rushing into sort of a Cold War and there's been all kinds of, you know, anti-China, anti-Asian hate issues directed at individuals, which I think, you know, this all this discourse of anti-China certainly plays into. Uh, so the questioner asks, you know, if this is just basically everyone being able to throw all their sort of anti-China pet peeves into into this bill, uh, you know, what sort of negative unintended consequences might this have to different uh, sectors? And like I mentioned, this person mentions education. I think, you know, is, is that's sort of the sector that I'm in. And I do see, you know, people having trouble, you know, scholars having trouble getting visas, decline in admissions from Chinese applicants. And I'm wondering, you know, what some of the other, like, industry groups or sectors that may have a less than positive view than the technology sector that seems to benefit a lot from the Endless Frontiers Act? You know, I think that one of the difficulties here is is that we are sort of flirting with a Cold War. Uh, but if we end up in a Cold War, it will necessarily be a very different one in terms of how we conduct it as well as how it impacts us than the 20th century Cold War, because uh, the United States and the Soviet Union didn't have commercial engagement to speak of, didn't have, you know, educational exchanges to speak of. Um, so there was a lot less to lose. There was a lot less on the table. And it was easier to sort of draw these clean lines in terms of what our engagement could be and, uh, and predict and manage what the fallout from that might be. In in this situation, you know, we have all sorts of science that's being conducted collaboratively between the United States and China that's been conducted collaboratively for, for many years now. And I've, I've heard some scientists say, for example, that in, um, in the discipline of physics, uh, there are some materials that scientists want to be able to use for various projects and experiments that really can only be procured 
from China, and they need to be able to collaborate with their Chinese counterparts in order to, in order to advance the field. And if they can't collaborate with their Chinese counterparts, it means the field won't advance in those in those areas. Um, when it comes to supply chain challenges, we've heard a lot from lawmakers about uh, their concern over how supply chain weaknesses and vulnerabilities were revealed during the COVID crisis, especially in the early weeks. And there is a great deal of motivation to make changes to the law that will help to ensure that supply chains are diversified, that they're, they're duplicative, and that there won't be um, shortages in the event of another crisis in the future. And you know, there, there's concern over all kinds of sectors uh, when it comes to potential supply chain shortages, everything from rarest minerals that are necessary for high-tech goods to pharmaceuticals to PPE. Um, but there's not necessarily a whole lot of information being exchanged or enough information being exchanged about where exactly the supply chain vulnerabilities might be, um, what the purposes of various supply chains that may be outside of the country are. Um, and there's there's definitely the potential for all sorts of unintended consequences there. One example being this, you know, provision from Senators Cornyn and Casey that might make it into the bill that it has this outbound investment review mechanism. Um, when Senator Casey talked about that provision upon its introduction, he mentioned this notion that um, supply chains were being moved outside of the United States and then the United States consumers were reliant on um, goods from overseas as a result of that, as if supply chains are simply moved outside of the United States in order to produce things more cheaply elsewhere and then bring them back home. But the reality is that in many, many cases, um, companies are manufacturing in China or elsewhere abroad in order to serve markets other than our own. China is, is such an enormous market and such a growing market uh, our companies tell us that about 80% of the manufacturing that they're doing on the ground in China is for the Chinese market. And so an unintended consequence, for example, of telling a pharmaceutical company that they can no longer have any manufacturing operations in China when they're in China in order to serve the Chinese market, uh, there are some diseases that are particularly, particularly common in China um, to such an extent that they're more common in China than everywhere else combined, um, they're going to lose an enormous market if they have to pull out of there. And that affects their profits and then ultimately affects their ability to, to push those profits back into research and development, the majority of the jobs in which are here <laughs> in the U.S. Great. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm curious about the retail industry, John, I mean, you mentioned in your earlier comments that, you know, with e-commerce uh, and really the, you know, sort of high tech penetration in into retail that, you know, there's a lot of positives, but, you know, also, obviously, you know, there's huge supply chain issues as well that touch your industry. So I'd love to, you know, hear a bit from from your members perspectives, like what potentially some of the unintended consequences or negatives may be. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of concern about what <laughs> what this all means at the end of the day. And, you know, first and foremost, 
you know, if and when a bill is passed, how the U.S. is going to implement and enforce certainly is a huge question about what, what that's going to take. And the short timelines that we're looking at and some of the provisions in the bill are somewhat unrealistic for how, you know, business is actually done today and how the government can actually put some of these regs in place and business, businesses can transition. But I think, you know, as Anna noted, the, the focus on supply chains right now, I mean, the administration in January when they came in started these supply chain reviews, these on you know a couple of the key sectors, but then looking more broadly at supply chains because of all the disruption we've seen as a result of COVID and and the challenges that are there, and I think you know over the past few years you've seen folks wanting to to shift supply chains because of the ongoing trade war with China and the tariffs, and that has not been easy for for many companies. You know there's a reason why why folks are in China, and it's because a lot of products just aren't made here in the United States anymore, and it's difficult to get those industries back up and running. And to meet the demand that we're seeing from consumers, which has been just astronomical since since the you know the, the pandemic. I mean, we just can't keep up with the demand that's there. And to be able to get those industries back up and running here in the United States is going to take years to do. You can't just do it overnight. So I think you know one of the challenges again is if we turn off that trade relationship, the economic relationship with China, that's going to hurt both inbound and outbound investments, and it's going to hurt businesses well beyond retail. It's retail, manufacturing, ag. Every across the board who gets hurt, that's actually being hurt now because of the tariffs as well. So, you know, as much as we want to focus on the positives, I think we really need to take a look at what happens next and what those unintended consequences could be. And again, not just here in the United States, but how do our trading partners get affected as well, our allies that are going to want to be put in a position to choose one side versus the other? You know, what kind of position does that put our allies into and how does that get get impacted as well? So, you know, it's a good question to ask of, you know, what are those unintended consequences? Unclear. But I think one of the things that we're trying to, you know, as we're, we're having discussions with, with leaders up on Capitol Hill is talk about some of the challenges that we see with some of these pieces of the, the legislation that's being introduced and what we see as, you know, what's going to work, what's not going to work, where it's going to take time and how some of these other things need to be thought about. And, you know, don't just rush this through the process, but we've got to have, this is a major piece of legislation that there needs to be full deliberative thought about how to do this going forward. So I think, you know, there certainly is concern about that, you know, if it gets passed and implemented, what happens next? And, you know, how does China react to this? How do our trading, you know, our allies and trading partners react as well? And and what, what happens with them? So yeah, interesting. Uh, there's a lot that folks need to you know, consider. Going a few of the things that, you, that both of you have touched on. I mean, I think you know this unique point in history where we have, you know, sort of COVID pandemic. You know, highlights a lot of sort of systemic issues in our economic system, supply chain. You know, this brewing tension with China over the over the past number of years. The idea that you know there are some critical technologies like semiconductors, chips that really are going to power the future. Uh, And one of the things that is surprising a little bit to me about this collection of acts, particularly the Endless Frontier and the CHIPS Act, is that it is basically the state playing a much more active role in in the economy, in business development, in innovation than at least in the U.S. it has done for a long time. Uh, and I was wondering if, you know, I'd love to hear from both of your comments on this, like how, you know, there's, you know, many of the very maybe sort of free market oriented um, senators are approaching this, others on the House, you know, how they're actually able to accept this this idea, which is really counter to the, you know, 
economic ideology and narrative that they've been pushing for the last you know 30 years. So maybe Anna, we'll, st- we'll start with you. Well, this is certainly one, one area where uh, the evolution of the Republican Party is striking. Um, there are a lot of a lot more Republicans these days who feel willing to embrace uh, a level of state intervention in the economy, um, uh, like a significant level potentially of state intervention in the economy than I remember there ever being. Um, and you know, I think there have long been many Democrats who feel that globalization had downsides for workers. There are now Republicans who are echoing that sentiment. So we're seeing uh, from both parties more of an inclination towards protectionism as well as more of an inclination towards um, embracing, uh, I guess, a form of state capitalism um, than, than I have ever seen. There are certainly still members that have concerns about what the ramifications of that will be. And, and it's not a party-specific thing. There are Republicans and Democrats who are worried about um, wasteful spending, uh, poorly targeted spending, and um, whether or not we can even keep up with the spending in a scenario where we're trying to uh, adopt some of, essentially adopt some of China's practices in order to compete with China, um, and how this will affect the rules that govern international trade now and into the future rules that, uh, you know, the United States has benefited enormously from in the past and that many people argued um, were only ill-suited to this current environment uh, because China wasn't following them. If we start not following them, then what happens to the rules? Um, it, It is a really interesting time. I think economics is always described as a soft science. And we're we're testing that right now because I even among the business community I, I feel like there are people uh, weighing questions of exactly what amount of intervention and how targeted intervention should be in order for it to boost competitiveness and be good for the private sector uh, as opposed to being being a drain or being you know managed competition. Yeah, how about you, John? Is you have any perspective on this from your members or more generally? Yeah, I mean, I think just, just generally, I mean, I think you've got many members of Congress and, and others who feel that, you know, we, we are losing right now when it comes to economic competition, especially in, in the tech space. And they're trying to figure out what can we do to help bolster U.S. industries to, to fight back and remain as, as leaders. And I think, you know, this... You know, as you're seeing, as Anna noted, there you know many more Republicans who are becoming you know have protectionist leanings. I mean, it really started with the last administration. Some of the trade policy we saw in the last administration, not just on China but other issues as well. So that certainly has has posed a challenge when you've got you know many members and they're now saying we've got to do everything we can to protect U.S. industry and U.S. innovation to go forward. So this is where you're seeing a lot of this focus now on whether it's state intervention or state support for getting the U.S. back in front, uh, that's why this is happening. I think they're, they're looking at, you know, what's happening with the free markets. You know, does global trade actually work the way it's supposed to work? Um, you know, what do we do to bring folks back, bring those jobs back to the United States? So I think that's where you're seeing, you know, all these different 
pieces of legislation coming together to try and address some of that. But I think, you know, we've got to be a little bit honest with ourselves and recognize that, you know, you can't bring everything back here to the United States. I mean, we are in a global economy right now and we rely upon each other for so many different pieces of what happens in this economy. Whether you've got, you know, the R&D that's happening here in the United States, which is so critical, just because something actually gets put together somewhere else doesn't mean there isn't U.S. investment in that product or that service that's happening somewhere else, which I think folks tend to, to lose sight of just because something doesn't say, you know, made in USA. They don't recognize the U.S. content that goes into something that's made somewhere else. So, you know, I think that's incredibly important for folks to realize and just, you know, I, it's a challenge going forward that I think we need to, to deal with. But it's this perception that, you know, we are losing when it comes to to high tech that has everybody kind of focusing now on how do we reinvest in ourselves to push forwards on that. Obviously, looking at how do we reinvest in education is a key part of that. How do we invest in job training and make sure we have the right workforce going forwards, which is so incredibly critically important for this. That's, I think, where we need to kind of focus our time and energy is really on that. How do we get this right skilled workforce in place that we need today? For the jobs that don't that won't exist in in five to ten. John's last point brings up kind of a theme that we've been seeing for the last uh, few years in discussions of of U.S. China trade, U.S. China commerce, and the U.S. China relationship more broadly. Um, A lot of the sense that the United States needs to rise to the China challenge really is primarily a sense that the United States needs to fix a variety of things domestically that uh, are, no longer, are no longer suited to, adequate to um, our current conditions. We need to have the pieces in place in order to ensure that we have a competitive economy globally in the future, that we are leaders in tech in the future. Those are domestic things. Um, but China you know, plays a role in the sense that China, uh, China's own success is maybe driving some of our insecurities and then also China's um, track record of not following the rules that uh, other nations follow and that we are trying to uphold makes them feel particularly threatening. But I think China is also um, a foil for for us, for these issues and, and an increasingly large pie of issues. Um, China is being invoked in order to uh, drum up support and and hit, you know drive home the message that various measures need to be taken um, or put in place, whether or not they're actually specifically China related. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and this idea of China as the foil, I think, really makes it hard to have you know sort of nuanced and well targeted uh, policy. Uh, one of the questions that came in that touches on themes that that both of you raised, but I'm going to ask you, John, because you just mentioned some of these things specifically in your comments. And I'll read this question. Uh, So it's Biden emphasizes trade agreements and a trade policy that helps rather than hurts American workers. Yet exports to China support about a million jobs uh, in the U.S. Uh, Isn't there an obvious contradiction here that threatens to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah, I mean, imports support 22 million jobs. So it's, you know, we've got to think about that as well as all the the jobs that are related to to trade, both import and export. So, you know, this administration has put a focus on a worker-centric trade policy. I think it's still unclear what that means and how that's going to work. And I think there's always been a focus on kind of U.S. manufacturing as 
kind of the good jobs. And I think we've got to focus more on, you know, what are the jobs, what are the jobs in the future that we need to focus in on? And I think this is where that, this, you know, global connectedness is so important and to get into a, in a, an economic or a cold war with China is going to really threaten a lot of that. Um, you know, all the different jobs, whether it's retail, manufacturing, services, ag exports to China are, are huge. I mean, it's their what, second largest market to for, for ag exports. And, you know, if any industry has been hurt more than anybody else, as we've seen over the past few years in the trade war, it's the ag sector whose markets have pretty much dried up because of that. So I think as we're, you know, being strategic about how to take on the China issue, I think we've got to recognize all the different pieces of the puzzle here. And again, going back to those unintended consequences, you know, who's going to be hurt because of that? And it's not just going to be in a stovepipe, one industry that's hurt because we're all interconnected. You know, what happens at the manufacturing plant is going to hurt retail because if you've got manufacturing jobs that are lost and workers who don't have, you know, don't have a dependable income, then I can go to the retail store and buy products. So you're going to hurt the retail industry. So it's all all connected. I think that's something we need to really kind of look at now is, the, the circularity of, of all the industries and how we all rely upon each other. So I think, you know, it's a very good question of, you know, you know, what happens to the workers yeah, and in the to future? be fair, uh, that's a question that who's I think we would, we would be having to tackle even if China wasn't the China that it is today, not just because of, you know, our own need to, um, to change some of the domestic trends that we're seeing, but because there are, you know, larger forces at work, like the the tech revolution, the information age, um, that are going to fundamentally change the way a whole lot of different jobs out there are done, um, forcing transitions that, regardless of whether China's in the equation, there, there are going to be necessary transitions for um, people who are laboring in various fields uh, because of technology. And again, this comes back to, again, you needing to focus on that education and workforce training and all those other pieces that I don't think right, are yeah. part of the debate that's going on right now on the big China bill. Makes that's, not, that's not uh, part of that discussion. Trade, and that needs to be a part uh, of that discussion. Topic, you know, recently, Catherine Tai and Leo He met, um, and there's been all discussion about the progress of the phase uh, one deal. What's your sense about how that the phase one deal is progressing and what's going to happen um, upcoming? Maybe, John, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, it, it's progressing. I think there are questions about, about, you know, how well China is implementing what's required under phase one, whether it's the, you know, the purchasing commitments that are there or the implementation of some of the, the new, uh, legal requirements that were there on, you know, IP theft and, and things, the forced tech transfer. I think there's still a lot of questions about that. I think, you know, from, from our perspective, look, we agreed with, with the last administration, USTR, with the, the report that came out, the, the, the 301 report about the challenges on IPR theft and forced tech transfer and, and some of the other issues. What we don't agree with is the use of tariffs to make the change, which continue to have an impact on many companies, many sectors today. I mean, the U.S. has collected well over $80 billion in tariffs, which are taxes from U.S. importers as a result of the, the trade war. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you know, ag exporters lost markets as a result, and they've been hurt as well. So from our perspective, you know, we want to see the issues with China addressed, but we've got to figure out a better way that doesn't basically shoot ourselves in the foot and prevent, you know, the ongoing economic recovery. Because now you've got these companies that, you know, continue to pay these billions of dollars in taxes 
and not being able to reinvest in their company, in their people. Now during this during COVID, this is the worst time to have these tariffs in place as companies are you know struggling to continue to go forward. So I mean, we would love to see the the U.S. wrap up its its you know top to bottom China review on these issues, and then let's either move to a phase two deal, and you know the base of that needs to be elimination of the tariffs, both the the U.S. tariffs on China as well as China's retaliatory tariffs on U.S. exports. So that's something we've been pushing for from from the outset is we've got to find a better way to address the, these challenges with China, and we can't just go it alone, which is how this approach is. Yeah, We've got to work I, I with our allies. Who all we would agree with concern. all of that. Uh, it's not our view that the tariffs are an ideal tool for uh, trying to change Chinese behaviors because the tariffs hurt our own interests. Um, and, it, and it seems pretty clear that this administration, for the time being, has no intentions of removing the tariffs in any significant way. Um, there's, you know, I feel like pressure on the administration when it comes to tariffs has really shifted from uh, seeking removal of the tariffs to seeking renewal of the exclusion process, um, so that so that at least companies have an opportunity to um, be exempted from certain tariffs. Uh, but there's no exclusion process really in place either right now, so the tariffs are are um, as bad as they've ever been. I think looking at what the progress of phase one is, uh, is a valid question. And in tracking phase one progress ourselves, we feel like in many respects, it's, it's gone well. Um, China didn't meet its purchase targets last year and is not fully on top of those targets this year. But given COVID um, and you know, the unprecedented impact on, on the global economy, it's understandable that those targets weren't completely met. We still feel like um, Chinese progress overall on the purchases front has been strong. And then on the structural commitments, there have been, there's been good progress in the ag space and in the insurance space. Uh, I think when it comes to intellectual property, there have been really good uh, steps taken to change to change rules um, and introduce new disciplines by the Chinese government, but we haven't seen them implemented yet. And so uh, that's one area where we feel like uh, the Chinese side could and should do more, and we'd like to see uh, the U.S. government push them to do that. Um, but then there's the question of whether phase one is, first of all, we want to see phase one continue to be implemented because there is good stuff in the agreement. Um, and it's important, especially in a climate where it seems that the two sides won't be able to get to the table to talk about other problems unless phase one continues to be implemented and functional. Uh, it's particularly important for phase one to be upheld. But um, was phase one the kind of agreement that we would ideally have liked to have seen? No, there were lots of things that were left off the table during the phase one negotiations and reserved for a phase two that was supposed to come someday. Uh, and we'd really like to get to phase two, which dealt with more of the structural and substantive issues um, that were identified. And second of all, uh, a lot of dialogues that existed before, um, before the Trump administration started prosecuting its, uh, its trade war 
with China, um, a lot of those dialogues are just gone. So we have very narrow avenues for engagement right now on commercial issues and many, many other issues. Uh, and it, I think there's a general consensus out there that the way that the dialogues were being run by the end of the Obama administration, uh, it was a whole lot of talk, but not sufficient action. So a, a lot of energy being expended for um, not a whole lot of reward. So I doubt we'll ever get back to a place where we have the kind of massive, um, frequent engagement on all these different fronts that we used to have. But we need something something closer to that than we have now. Because right now we just, uh, we aren't talking about a lot of the problems. And if we're not talking about them, then of course we're not going to make progress. Great. Thank, thank you. Um, well, one other quick area I wanted to address, and we, we don't have that much time, um, but I'd love to hear from both of you on it, is, you know, there's a ton of, of sort of bills, proposals in this package, but also, you know, Anna mentioned there's 175 proposals already in process. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what some of the other bills that are progressing through the system, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the a little bit about them and the future of them. And one of them that sort of stood out to me, uh, given you're, you're with us, John, is the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, you know, given the heavy use of obviously cotton in apparel and the apparel industry, obviously an important, uh, you know, retailer, uh, would love to hear any thoughts you have on that X in particular. Yeah, I guess I'll let me I'll start on that specifically. I think it's still unclear how the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is going to going to move. Um, you've got two different versions in the House and the Senate. Senator Rubio is the, the chief sponsor in the Senate side, um, and I think he's still working on on that bill. It's not going to be included in the larger China package that we were discussing earlier. I think it's unclear, you know, what what the progress is going to be moving forwards. Um, you know, a, a, as a base, obviously the the bill. You know, creates what's known as a rebuttable presumption that you know, any product coming out of Xinjiang is made with forced labor, and it's left upon the importer to to prove the negative. So, you know, the bill did pass the House last Congress overwhelmingly by by unanimous consent. I think it was four hundred and something to to one, and so the House has the you know the same version. But you know, we've been working trying to address some of the areas, especially on some of the customs compliance issues that are really challenging for, for a lot of companies. And they try to make the bill more uh, implementable, that customs has the ability to actually put this in place and that importers know what the, the rules are going to be, what the what the rules of the road are going to be. You know, first and foremost, it creates a strategic plan for customs to develop with input from stakeholders on how to actually address the situation, how to address the issues when they create a what is known as a withhold release order which you know, we're running into challenges today of the current withhold release orders they have in place, the, the region-wide on cotton, cotton products, and tomato, tomato products. There are a lot of challenges with how that's being implemented. I think part of what we're trying to do is work with Congress to help with some of the implementation and enforcement parts of pieces of this. Um, it certainly is a challenge, but you know, we're continuing to, to do that. But unclear, again, how it's going to move forward in the Senate and then how the House process is going to work. The House bill did pass a uh, committee, uh, the Foreign Relations Committee, a couple of weeks ago. Um, again, it's similar; it's a pretty much identical bill that passed the House last year. 
Um, and I think that was actually included in the bill, the Eagle Act, that uh, Congressman Meeks introduced last week as well. So, you know, if the bills do move, we're going to have to Great. get so, to a conference Anna, and just address for the, the We have about two minutes two uh, remaining. And, and along these lines, you know, as you're looking forward, you know, after, you know, this big China package works its way through, sort of as we continue on through the fall, I mean, what are some of the big China-focused um issues in Congress that, that we should all be looking out for? Well, many of them, I think, actually do feature in this omnibus bill because uh, because it is inclusive of so many different proposals from both sides of the aisle. Um, but I expect that we'll continue to see proposals um, targeted at the same subsets of issues going forward, regardless of whether or not those issues are addressed in this bill and regardless of whether or not this bill becomes law. Um, So I guess, you know, a few of the buckets, there's human rights, which includes both what's happening in in Xinjiang and, um, you know, concerns over what's been playing out in Hong Kong, religious freedoms, um, surveillance practices of the Chinese government, um, and much more. There is um, supply chain supply chain issues and a desire to make the United States more self-reliant, essentially, or more reliant, at the very least, on uh, our neighbors and our um, allies who share democratic principles, I guess. Um, there are many proposals that have to do with supporting Taiwan. There are proposals that have to do with getting to the bottom of uh, exactly what the origins of the COVID outbreak were. There are proposals that would limit research engagement with with Chinese researchers and scientists, depending on funding in some cases, depending on association at any point uh, in their history with the Chinese government or certain elements of the Chinese government in other cases. There are uh, proposals that would create new visa restrictions for Chinese travelers uh, and on and on and on. I mean, they're really just you could probably just pick an issue off the top of your head and ask if there's a a bill that's China related um, that deals with that issue. And the answer would I'd give it at least a 70 percent chance that the answer would be yes. Great. Well, that's, I think, a really interesting, interesting way to close. And we started very specifically, you know, talking about this, you know, this upcoming uh, bill. And I think, you know, what it really illustrates is there's some, you know, fundamental key issues at play that are not just going to be resolved by this bill but are actually with us for um, for quite a while. So thank you both, uh, Anna and John, for joining us here on China Corner Office. Really appreciated your insights uh, and the discussion. Thank you. Have a good one. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.